You're tuned to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcasted live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator. And he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for almost 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, folks, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Good afternoon, or good, excuse me, good weekend. East Tennessee, and welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I feel like I am a little rusty. Uh, last week I was out of town. We ran a, an older show, and then the week before that, actually, my daughter had had a severe case of mono and had been in the hospital, and so we ended up having to kind of run a prepackaged show for that, too. So, uh, But she's doing great. And, uh, you know, the summer's starting to wrap up. We're having a a really hot weekend. I know that. Um, You know, we live in such a great country. I really believe that. I know there's a lot of craziness going on right now. We need unity as much as anything. If you look at how our United States was really founded and built, you know, it was, you know, we had three branches of government. We've got the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. And the whole idea was that those three branches of government would balance each other. The judicial side of our country defends and interprets the law. So it protects basic freedoms of United States citizens. But is our law system out of date? Do we have issues with our legal systems? You know, lawyers have long been considered guardians of the law. They interpret and defend the laws of the U.S., Uh, the state and local governments, and those of citizens. And it has long been thought that being a lawyer was a career of great stature and had a great financial prospect. Now, over the last couple of decades, especially starting in the late, you know, maybe 2007, 2008, law schools have been churning out students who leave school with exorbitant amounts of debt, And many have a hard time making it as a lawyer or even finding a job. And then how easily can the typical middle-class American get proper representation, whether it's civilly or criminally? And and is is the court system really set up to reflect our society and protect our interests? Today, I'm joined by Benjamin Barton. Uh, He is a university laws professor, and he's he's an author of several books, focused on the profession of law, law schools, and the American justice system. So good morning, Ben. Welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan. Good morning, Jim. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. And definitely call me Ben, please. Okay. Well, it's great having you. Um, Before we get too much into really getting deep into the content, just give us a quick background, Ben, of how you started your law career and ended up at the University of Tennessee uh, teaching in the College of Law. Uh, so, yeah, I went to law school at University of Michigan. And I clerked for a year, and then I worked at a big law firm for a couple of years. And then I got into teaching on the clinical law side, just sort of interesting. So the students represent 
indigent people or poor people in more plain language. And the professor oversees their work, and then we run a classroom part to teach them how to be lawyers. It's a little bit like the medical model where you're doing a clinical experience for the students. So I did that for two years at Arizona State as a visitor, and then I did a national job search and um, ended up here in Knoxville, Tennessee in 2001. And actually, you had the great good fortune to interview my beloved wife, India Kincannon, I believe a month or two ago. And so uh, our current mayor came with me. And uh, we got married when I was in law school and uh, traveled around the country and then settled here in 2001 and have been just thrilled ever since. Um, so I'm oh, at the University of Tennessee and uh, taught in the clinical program there for another 11 years. And now I teach uh, torts and contracts. Um, but that experience of being with the students and representing poor people in court has always sort of powered my um, scholarly interests and my research interests. And really, it's just my passion in life to make the courts more accessible to people and to ordinary folks. And not just not just the impoverished, but all the way up to the middle class. Like, it's really, really, really expensive to hire a lawyer in the United States. And lots of people have problems that require legal help. Um, and that mismatch is something that I've always really focused on. Yeah, we're going to get into some of that. I know you hit on some of that in your book, Rebooting Justice. So I want to get into a lot of those things. By the way, when, whenever I speak with a professor in the College of Law over at University of Tennessee, it brings back memories for me because I don't know if you're aware of this, but my father, Beach Brogan, uh, was the oh, general counsel. He was the general counsel at the University of Tennessee for 25 years. Yep. Secretary. No, I've heard his name many. I, I don't think I met him. He wasn't still here in 2001, was he? He retired in 1999, and he did consulting, oh. some consulting for the university for one year after his retirement. And uh, he was a great man. I'm sure if anything you've heard about him, I mean, he just, everybody loved Beach Brogan. He was a great mediator. He was a secretary to the Board of Trustees. And, yep. uh, but yeah, that's no, my for dad. Sure. He's so. a name I'm very, very familiar with. That's great. Uh, you must be super proud of your dad. He's a, he was a, a giant around yeah. here for sure so i was very so I proud missed of him, him and i missed the 98 i missed him and i missed the 98 national championship coming in yeah. 2001 <laughs> yeah that's right well and i'll mention to you you know uh this is way off topic i, I, I really want to get to what we're going to talk about today but i'll you know with the big news coming out this weekend that the university of texas and oklahoma are wanting to join the sec in you know mainly because of football but they're wanting to join the sec and what one of the things that's come up is the the registration and trademark of the UT, especially the yep. interlocking logo UT and the power T. Well, in the 80s, my father was the one that actually led uh, the negotiation and settlement of how that would be handled, where Texas has it west of the Mississippi River and Tennessee has it east of the Mississippi River. And he was influ very instrumental in how that ended up getting settled. So anyway, oh, that's amazing. I, it makes me what think a great of all story. That's super funny. Yeah, yeah, I really think maybe is. we'll just squeeze it out of them. We have to be the real UT, and they're going to have to fold on that. Yeah, well, you know what I say about the real UT? We were a, we were a university 50 years before they were a state. So. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, um, my father, my, 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 the late great, uh, my late great father-in-law, Charles Lewis Kincannon, India's dad, um, he grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, and then he went to the University of Texas. And so we had a running joke and argument about this. The, yeah. And I used similar logic on him, which was without David Crockett, there wouldn't be a state of Texas. Yeah, Texas would be part of Mexico. Yeah. Right. Well, let's, let's get into this. Uh, you, you wrote a book, Fixing Law Schools, 
Uh, and of course, you also mentioned, you know, we mentioned your book, Rebooting Justice. Is there a real concern with where our legal system is today? Does it serve the people very well? Yeah, no, there's a growing concern about what's uh, known as the access to justice crisis. And basically, uh, it runs through law schools, it runs through the courts, and then it runs through bar associations. And um, some folks are working on it, and some folks are dragging their feet and hoping that we can just keep doing things the way we did in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, but yeah, no, basically, if you know anybody who's had a legal problem um, and tried to go see a lawyer about it, um, the current costs are really, really, really high. Um, and sometimes you'll have a problem like a, a DUI where you, you really, really, really need a lawyer. You don't want to go to court without a lawyer if they're going to take your truck and put you in jail for two years, I mean, for two days and take away your license for a year. Um, but just getting a lawyer to handle a DUI is, you know, $10,000 just as, as a beginner, like that's the retainer. Um, and so that's money that most folks don't have just laying around. Uh, so it's a very, very serious problem. Um, and it affects, it affects the middle class. It affects all of us. Has this been just kind of gradually creeping us for, up for on us, this, that issue over the last, what, 30 or 20 or 30, 40 years? Yeah. Yeah. It really, really has. Um, and part of it's that, um, you know, law plays a much greater role in the lives of Americans than it did, you know, in the 1950s or the 1930s. Um, you know, there's just a lot more laws, there's more criminal laws, there's more civil laws, there's certainly more regulations. Um, and then some of it is the, the, like the cost of law school. Um, that's really, really gone up since the 1960s. And so then that makes the cost of hiring a lawyer more expensive. Um, and then there's also the part where every other part, or not every other part, most other parts of the economy have really, really, really modernized a lot. And courts and court systems have not modernized at all. If you walk into an American court, and this is a federal court or a state court or the city court right here in Knoxville, Tennessee, it operates on basically the same basis that it did in 1850. Like you could bring back Abraham Lincoln, the lawyer, and trot him out there, and he would be like, well, a lot of people seem to have these like digital devices are looking at that strange. But, oh, look, here's a judge and a bailiff and some lawyers in suits, and they're, they're arguing over things. Like he would recognize everything that's going on in court. And I don't mean that as praise. That's not okay. Um, we really, really, really need to modernize these institutions. Um, technology has transformed every other part of the economy and many other parts of the government, and that's something we really, really need to do. We're visiting with Ben Barton. He's a law professor over at the University of Tennessee, and we're talking about the status of law in America. And we're going to talk about a lot of things. When we come back, we'll get into the uh, the problem with law schools today and the challenges there. Uh, we're also later, I mean, uh, Ben's got a book coming out on the Supreme Court. How, how, how much does a Supreme Court today look like what it looked like in the late 1700s or in the 1800s? And is that a good or a bad thing? So stay with us as we visit with Benjamin Barton right here on More Living with Jim Brogan. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm your host, Jim Brogan. We come to you every Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. 
We're visiting with Ben Barton. He is a professor of law over at the College of Law at the University of Tennessee and talking about some of the challenges with our entire judicial system today and the need for maybe massive evolution in our legal system. Uh, ben, you authored the book Fixing Law Schools, and you mentioned in our first segment there some of the challenges with the way law school tuition has increased so much. Then you also talk about the Great Recession really impacted law school admission today. People, or certainly over the last 10 years, people getting out of law school have had a lot harder time face getting jobs. So how has the landscape for our actual law school education changed in the last decade? Well, so the first thing I should note is I'm a professor at University of Tennessee. We're a great deal. <laughs> That's okay. the first thing I should note. And, uh, but the second thing I should note is, yeah, um, law school tuition has outpaced inflation every year, except I think it's maybe 2014 or 15. There's one year in the last 30 years where it hasn't outpaced inflation. And it's frequently two or three times the amount of inflation. And that's higher ed generally, but law schools like the higher ed problems on steroids. Um, it's just gotten really, really, really expensive. And um, a lot of your listeners, um, your dad certainly, if you went to law school in the 40s or the 50s, all the way up into the 60s or the 70s, the tuition was really low and the return on investment was really huge. So there's a general understanding amongst people that it doesn't really matter where you go to law school. You get a law degree, you're in line for an upper middle class or even wealthy life. Um, and that, that fact has not carried on. Um, the job market has been really tough really since the late 90s, um, but particularly that 2008 into 2014 range, the job market was just a disaster um, for law schools. Um, and then fewer people applied, and then so they lowered admission standards, uh, and then you, you, you had this uh, you know downward cycle. Now, one and yet of the reasons I wrote the book, to, and yet tuition oh, yeah, costs totally. continued to just well, absolutely. escalate, and 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 without mercy, just continuing to grind on. Uh, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was that. Um, in the last couple of years, we saw a bottom, and the book predicted that we were going to see a bounce back. And it, we, of course, the book did not predict COVID. <laughs> but with COVID, there's been a huge bounce, bounce back. We had more applications this year at the University of Tennessee than we've literally ever had. Um, and that's we're not we're, we're ahead of the national trend, but that's the national trend is that the applications have come back. Um, and so one of the things I really want people to remember and understand is that the problems that happened after 2008. Some of them were cyclical, but not all of them were cyclical. Um, the expense of the degree, the amount that you earn, and the time that it takes to pay it back, that's not a problem that's been fixed. Um, and law schools really, really, really need to not brush off their shoulders and walk on as if nothing happened between 2008 and 2015. We've got to address the sort of underlying problems in the system. And part of it is the, the cost. And then, but. Well, well, I was going to ask you. I, I'm so sorry. I thought you were finished, but um, no, you you're good. Listen, I'm a law professor. I go on a little bit. Well, you know? <laughs> that's okay. Well, um, you mentioned in your book the Trump bump as it relates to law schools. Uh, can you elaborate yep. on that a little bit? Yeah. So that was the first. That was the first signs of growth that really came to, came to fruition with the with the COVID. Um, but yeah, no, applications hit their bottom and then bumped up in the first couple of years of the Trump administration. Um, and part of it was this sort of uh, 
lawyer hero narrative of people fighting against the immigration bans and things of that nature. There was there was a, a lot more interest amongst, um, I guess, Gen Z and millennials and coming to law school all of a sudden. And it's a huge irony because um, law faculties, uh, although UT is a little bit different than that, we have our share of conservatives over here. Most law faculties are invariably super extra liberal. So there's a great irony to the idea that Trump saved their bacon. And also, you can imagine Trump doesn't have much love for liberal law faculties. <laughs> so it's sure. ironic on both sides. Well, in your book, you talk about some of the worst schools for student loan debt, and that in your opinion, some of the schools have had almost a predatory behavior when it comes to admissions. So yep. have you seen a shift in that? I mean, is the I guess in your book, you argue that the Trump bump, is, if this is temporary— the law schools haven't done anything to fix the underlying problem. And really kind of what I'm hearing from you, Ben, is that issue with the law schools is filtering into the entire judicial system in terms of access to, to legal advice. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, no. So uh, it's a really the market for law schools is a very, very, very strange market in the following way. The top 20 most expensive law schools and the way i count expenses the amount you have to borrow to go there because the tuition numbers are frequently discounted so um, it's harder to tell exactly what a law school charges because so many discounts are allowed but but a loan number is a hard number somebody went to the government and took out loans on that and they're not dischargeable in bankruptcy like they're paying those back the only way they don't pay them back is if they still have them when they pass away um, so that's a hard number, and that's an easy way to see what law schools are charging. The list of the top 20 schools for debt includes Harvard and NYU and um, Cal Berkeley and some of the very best law schools in the country. And then, weirdly, it includes some of the worst law schools to, by, by the numbers, the entering numbers. But then, more importantly, by bar passage and by getting a job. They have the highest debt numbers, and those are the predatory schools. Um, and all you have to do if you're thinking about going to law school is um, before you ever go to law school, go to the website for the law school and look to see what percentage of folks pass the bar and what percentage of folks get full-time work in the legal field. And first of all, there are law schools where those numbers are below 50%. <laughs> you have a coin flip chance of graduating from law school with six figures of debt. Some, some folks will graduate with $250,000 in debt, Jim and then fail the bar and then not be able to get a job. Like, it's just unconscionable that these law schools are, are saddling kids that way. Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I mean, any type of postgraduate education, you would be thinking, this should prepare me to be able to get a better job and have the training I need to be successful. And if people, and the bar is a hard exam, but if, you know, if they're failing in droves, that's not a good sign at all. No, for sure. And along with the admissions crisis, then they let in pretty much anybody who applied. And then you're not going to be surprised to find out. Then the bar passage rate collapsed. And we're right. still we're digging our way out from under with that. But we're not out of the woods with that at all. And by, by we, I mean law schools generally. UT is, has had a good bar passage rate. We've always had a good bar passage rate. Um, but yeah, no, nationally, there are schools that have bar passage rates that are really low. The good news is, when I, when I started working on the book, the ABA was very, very, very loose with law schools. They were not shutting down law schools, and they weren't really um, um, putting them in hot water. And now they've actually closed four or five law schools, and that's a really uh, good trend, in my opinion. Listen, if you're charging a fortune and the students can't get jobs or pass the bar, it's not okay. 
that's just a straight, like that's a three-card Monty. That's just a hustle. That's not a professional education. And so the ABA has been taking that seriously, and I've been really heartened and pleased to see that. Let's dive into uh, being the Supreme Court and the justice and the uh, judicial system itself. So, because um, I want to at least start that, and then after our break, we'll get a little bit meatier into that. Um, you know, Justin, uh, excuse me, Antonin Scalia, of course, um, had, had, had talked about the fact that the current Supreme Court is really not particularly diverse or reflective of our country as a whole. And in fact, I don't think it really started out that way. Of course, I think are all the justices now either got their law degrees at Harvard or Yale and spent most of their careers either in politics or academics. Isn't that right? So um, actually, a lot of people are academics. We don't have a single justice who spent any time in politics. And that's a huge change. Historically, that's a massive, massive change. It's uh, what about typically you don't, on the think, screen- you don't consider Brett Kavanaugh of having spent time in, in politics? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, He has spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. doing political type jobs. But that's not when I say politician, I mean, like 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 India can like a person who went door to door and knocked on doors and asked for votes. Um, One of the issues that we have, actually, is these guys, these guys and gals have these super fancy high end jobs or they're working in the White House counsel's office or they're working on Senate select committees. Um, that is very, very, very high-end legal work, but it's the opposite of political work, meaning they don't ever see a regular person. They don't go out and knock on doors. They don't have to earn anybody's vote. Um, And in my opinion, some folks who are listening will disagree, but in my opinion, that's a skill that's greatly missing on the current Supreme Court. And then I'll say um, Barrett, who was just appointed, she is a Notre Dame law grad. That's right. So the the most recent appointee is a Notre Dame law grad, and then um, Ginsburg, who passed away, and that's who Barrett um, took her slot. She had one year at Columbia Law School. Um, so she was the lone holdout on that, on the law school thing. But, yeah, everybody else, and this has been true for, um, you know, 30 years, basically. Almost all of the people um, after John Paul Stevens who were appointed were Yale or Harvard Law School. And then some level of super fancy undergraduate, uh, Stanford or one of the, or one of the Ivies. Um, Justice Thomas went to Holy Cross, and Justice Barrett uh, happily went to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. So um, she's actually the second justice from Rhodes College. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that is pretty cool. Yeah, Abe Fortas uh, went to, I guess then it was Southwestern College of Memphis, but he went to what is now Rhodes. So I am actually calling Rhodes now the Harvard of the South. I think they're well <laughs> okay. ahead of uh, Duke. They, they have more Supreme Court justices than Duke or Vanderbilt. So yeah, I think they've amazing. earned that title. Tell you what, we're going to get to our bottom of the hour break. When we come back, I want to unpack a little bit what the Supreme Court used to look like and the entire judicial system. You know, is it really reflective of America or their challenges there, too? So stay with us. We'll also have our dollars and cents segment when we come back. Are you taking too much risk in your portfolio? And what is that risk? Is it market risk? Is it inflationary risk? Stay tuned. This is More Living with Jim Brogan. You're listening to News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. 
Here's your host, Jim Brogan. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We're with you every Saturday morning at 9 and again at 3 in the afternoon. You can catch all of our shows, podcast at our website. Go to broganfinancial.com, click on radio, and uh, we've just got a wealth of information there. So you, My goal is to give you great information so you can make informed and prudent decisions that can impact the quality of your life. We're visiting with Ben Barton. He is Benjamin Barton. He is a law professor over at the University of Tennessee and has written many books about the legal profession and some of the challenges and access to proper legal representation in America. Uh, we're kind of diving into how diverse is the Supreme Court really uh, and also, what are some upcoming cases of, of interest that, we, that you need to be aware of? However, before we get back to Ben, it is time for Dollars and Cents. Want to be sure you are getting the most out of your retirement? For all the years of your retirement? That's the primary goal of More Living with Jim Brogan and our Dollars and Cents segment, where we provide you with an important financial tip that will help positively impact the quality of your life in retirement. And now, here's Jim with this week's Dollars and Cents tip. Are you taking too much risk in your portfolio? And what are the biggest risks in your portfolio? That's our topic for dollars and cents today. Usually when we think of the word risk, we think of the risk of losing a lot of money. Uh, And that is one of the two really big risks in an investment portfolio. The other, though, is inflationary risk. And, of course, this year inflation has really become a big concern. And while I think some of the causes of inflation this year are temporary causes, I think long-term there are some real challenges potentially with inflation. At the same point, you know, there's we, we, especially as we get closer to retirement or if you're already retired, there's a concern of how much you could lose in the next bear market, and there will be a next bear market. I mean, markets go up, markets go down. There will be bear markets. There will also be bull market surges like we're seeing right now. Who would have predicted last March at the height of the pandemic that the market would be up almost 100% since then? So, you know, we... we and over the long haul, in, in a 20- or 30-year period in retirement, we know the market, taking risk in the markets, the right kind of risk where it's balanced and diversified, is the best way to beat inflation. The problem is when you go into retirement, you have to draw income from your investments. So taking market risk, losing money in a bad market, can be a lot more devastating when you're in the early years of retirement and drawing income from those investments than when you're in your 40s and you have 20 years until retirement because you're going to just let your investments sit and go through the ups and downs and over a 20, 30-year period, the market should produce. They're not guaranteed to. They always have in the past a nice return to beat inflation. So when you retire, you take on a new form of risk that's called sequence of return risk. And the best way to say this is, you know, we know the markets do well over 30 years. The problem is when are the good years and when are the bad years? You know, if you're 30 years old, it, it, you know, and you're investing, it really doesn't have a lot of impact. You know, if the, is the market down next year substantially? If you're 30, 31 years old, put more in your 401k. But for, for, by all means, don't stop investing. 
and you've got plenty of time to write it out. You're not going to touch that 401k until you're 60 or older, more than likely. But when you're retired, that's not the case. You have to pull money from your investments. And if you liquidate them when they're down and you spend that money for income, you've compounded your losses, and then that money will never come back with market recovery because you've spent the money for income. So the challenge in retirement is this competing interest of inflation in the long haul, but the need for stability of income in the short term that doesn't depend on the stock market and where you don't compound losses when the markets are inevitably down. So the two big things there I would leave you with is, one, having an income plan that doesn't depend on market investments, where in the, in the short term, you're drawing from things that are secure and stable and not in the, at risk in the market. And then number two, the actual market investments. Have you actually evaluated the amount of risk you're taking? You, you, do you have balance and diversification of asset classes that don't just go up and down with the stock market, where you have a whole bunch of stuff that if one thing zigs, another thing zags? So you have balance. And then when the markets are ultimately down, you're not down as much. Now then that means when the markets boom, you probably won't be up as much. So it's all about balance and about measuring risk. If you haven't done that in a while or you haven't rebalanced your portfolio, you may be taking excessive amounts of risk, either with the risk of market loss or the risk of inflation, especially if you have a lot in bond funds. So be sure you're addressing the risk in your portfolio, both the market risk of downturn and the long-term risks of inflation and the risk of short-term income in retirement. That's our Dollars and Cents segment for this week. You can find this week's Dollars and Cents segment and others by visiting BroganFinancial.com. Do please check us out online at BroganFinancial.com. I've just got a plethora of information. If you click on Resources, uh, we've got lots of guides. Uh, we also have a webinar coming up on August the 3rd here in a week and a half, Tuesday, on Social Security. Just a quick 25-30 minute webinar. You can find out more at BroganFinancial.com. Uh, you can also uh, click to register or find out more about my upcoming classes. My next college class is in the latter part of August. Two-part, adult education, thrive financially in retirement. It's at Pellissippi State, Hardin Valley Campus. Two two-hour sessions. I'll be back at the University of Tennessee's non-credit adult education in September. You can fi find my entire schedule online at BroganFinancial.com. Click on Classes, uh, and you can get more information. We're visiting with Ben Barton at the University of Tennessee Law School, and we're talking about the law system and the judicial system. And Ben, let's let's revisit this with the Supreme Court. So, you know, on the surface, there appears to be more diversification, um, or diversification. I'm in a money phase all of a sudden in my mind. More no, no, diversity. Diversity, more, for sure. <laughs> diversity. On the surface, it appears there's more diversity with women, people of color. But in terms of background and life experiences, maybe not. Now, what did you, you mention the, the, all the, all the, uh, the you know, where people got their law degrees, we talked about, you know, working in the upper crust of the, either the political or legal system. But it, talk to us about in the early days, in the late 1700s and the 1800s, 
What did the Supreme Court look like? How was it first set up? George Washington appointed the first how many justices, and what did that look like? So the original Supreme Court had six justices on it, which is a hilarious number for a voting body. Uh, it is. <laughs> they had an even number of six, and then there was a different stretch where they had an even number of eight, and that was because their understanding was that the, that was not the main thing the Supreme Court was going to do. They did not expect the Supreme Court to play the role the, the large role that it does in the country now. Now, that doesn't mean I'm against what it does now. I'm just saying you don't put a voting body at six people if you expect it to have right. a bunch of really tight uh, decisions. Um, and then the first the first group of justices are, are amazing, amazing people. John Jay, the first chief justice of the Supreme Court, um, was basically the equivalent to the president under the Articles of Confederation. Um, and he was a uh, he was the Secretary of State. He traveled all over the world settling disputes for us. He basically wrote the Jay Treaty with France that kept us from going to war with France. Um, so you had these uh, – and then the, he was he was typical of the time. Though. You had people who had been politicians. You had people who had been very, very involved. You had a lot more um, military veterans. Um, the the first, first maybe 10 or 20 Supreme Court justices, many of them were veterans, um, especially because of the Revolutionary War. Um, you, you had a lot more politicians, and you also had people who came from all different walks of life and different types of education. So you had people like John Jay, who came from very wealthy families, um, and then you had people like James Wilson, who was born in Scotland, came to America penniless, and then ended up um, on the Supreme Court after basically teaching himself uh, the American law. Yeah, and then, I mean, we don't have anything resembling something like that today, right? I mean, people. Well, so, I mean, I mean, I mean there's are there people gradu are there people graduating law school today that just they don't have any hope of ever moving up into the federal court system? Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, we really, really, really have gone to this uh, hyper elite model. That's what I call it, um, and then once you get these these elite people, they work in what I call these cloistered jobs. So uh, roughly half of the folks on this court have um, significant experience as a law professor, and a law professor is a very, very cloistered job. The only regular people you see are the people who work on the staff on the law school. Everybody else is either a law student or a lawyer or a fellow professor. Basically, that's who you see professionally. Um, and then even worse is folks who are working as um, federal judges. So it didn't used to be the case that everybody who got on the Supreme Court had spent a significant stretch of time as a federal judge, and that's really the case now. The only person um, who's on the – there's only one person on the Supreme Court right now who was not a federal court of appeals judge before they got on the court. And I think three or four of the justices were federal court of appeals judges in Washington, D.C. So it's a really, really rarefied job, and that job you never see anybody regular. Like they hold court one week a month, and the only people they ever see are fancy lawyers who appear in their courts and then their clerks. Um, so that's not a job where you rub elbows with regular people. And that's why people will find it weird for me to say, oh, we should look into having a politician on the court. They would say, well, isn't the problem that we have too much politics on the court? Well, first of all, no, we haven't had a politician on the court since Sandra Day O'Connor, and it's not my impression that people think the court's less political. Like, that has not solved the problem, eliminating politicians on the court. Um, and second, what I think is missing on the court is common sense. It's this experience of being out in the world, seeing regular people, understanding how your decisions play out. 
in real life. Uh, when they used to appoint judges, a lot of the judges were district court judges. And, and why would that matter? Well, because the district court judge sees regular people every day. They see the litigants. Yeah. They see jurors. They see people they are putting in jail. They get a lot of time, and they get a real good look right up close and personal with how their work is affecting the world. Um, and we're just really missing that on this Supreme Court. When we come back from our last break, um, I do want to quickly hit some important cases that are coming up in the Supreme Court. But then also, Ben, I'd like to get to some practical stuff. I know that you teach on a class on contracts, and I want to, you know, it seems yep. like everything we do now has the long con. I mean, our cell phone contract is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to ask for a little bit of practical advice too for our listeners. So stay with us as we visit with College of Law professor over at UT Ben Barton. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. This is More Living on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm Jim Brogan. And uh, do check us out online, broganfinancial.com. You can click on radio, hear all of our past shows, including this show will be up on our, up our, on our site uh, by probably Monday, but certainly by Tuesday. Um, ben, uh, unfortunately, we've only got about five minutes or so here, but I want to hit a couple of different things, so we'll try to do kind of a lightning round here. Uh, Supreme Court's in recess in their next term, which I think begins in October, any big cases you think we need to be aware of or watching? The fancy word is they've granted cert, meaning they've already announced these cases are going to happen that are going to be blockbusters. Is There's a Second Amendment case. So the Supreme Court has already held that there's a Second Amendment right um, to have a handgun inside your home. But they're, uh, they've announced cert on a concealed carry outside of your home case based on a New York state law. And that could really overturn a lot of um, gun control laws around the country. And um, Barrett in particular is a big Second Amendment hawk. So I, I think that may actually happen. The second one they granted cert on that will be a really, really big deal is they granted cert on a Mississippi law that has banned abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Mm. Um, and, you know, all over the country, there are even more aggressive laws than that happening. Um, those have not reached the Supreme Court yet, but the 15-week one has. This one's a little bit harder to read the tea leaves on, um, but if they were to allow that Mississippi law to go forward, that would overturn a lot of um, abortion laws around the country. Yeah, both of those are certainly big cases. Uh, let's get into a couple of practical things, Ben. Um, I mentioned contracts. You know, you teach a course yep. on contracts. Seems like there's a contract for everything now, our house, our business. I mentioned cell phone contracts. What should things be aware of when it comes to contracts and all that fine print we get when we do things? Uh, yeah, so um, I'll take this in, in two different orders. The first thing is um, there's a bunch of online tools that can help you create your own contracts. So consider looking into that. If you're a freelancer or you like, so for example, you're uh, wedding bands, you should just go ahead and create a good contract for that that you can have going forward. It's never been cheaper to do that. Um, you can get a young lawyer to do that for you, or there's online tools to do that. So I would recommend that. 
if you if you've been doing a lot of business on a handshake basis, um, go ahead and consider trying to do it. You don't have to do a 25 page contract with 85 codicils. You can just do a really simple, cut, straightforward contract. And the good news about that is it'll really protect you. Uh, not 100%, but it'll help you if you have to sue somebody for work that you've done. Um, if you have a contract, that'll really, really help. Uh, yeah, the the long, long, long form contracts that you're supposed to read and check to agree to, uh, I am sad to report and I have no good advice on that. You're not really allowed to negotiate those, and they won't give you a cell phone unless you click and agree to them. Um, rather than advice, I'll tell a funny story. Or I think it's a funny story. When Indy and I bought our first house, and actually it's the house we live in in Fort and Gill here in Knoxville. It's the only house we've ever owned. Uh, everybody on this who's listening here who's bought a house knows you've got to borrow the money to do it. The bank comes, and they've got a phone book size pile of things for you to sign. I mean, it's a it's one contract after oh, another, yeah. and they're super long and complicated. So India said, finally, you know, like we got married to law school. I've lived with this guy. Uh, now, finally, we have a use for you. Uh, you read through all of this stuff and tell me what it says. And I said, I'm not reading that. And she said, what, why not? You're a lawyer. Should, shouldn't you care about that? And I said, well, well, first, there's nothing good in there. Like, I'm not going to read anything where I'm like, oh, look at that. That's surprisingly amazing. Look at what a great deal we're getting on that first. And then second, I don't read anything I can't negotiate. So um, when you deal with the bank, it's not like you can be like, hey, on page 12, uh, subparagraph 85, I need to change that. They're just going to be like, well, then borrow from another bank. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's no negotiating yeah. on any of this stuff. Um, and so if I can't negotiate it, I just go ahead. And, if I can't negotiate it and I need it, I just go ahead and um, and just sign it. it. It really doesn't help to read it because you hardly ever learn anything of use. Um, now, that is, there, there's the, the risk part of that, which is sometimes bad things happen, and then you go back and look at the contract, and it's not working out for you. That being said, if you go back in time, you're like, oh, if I had read that, would it have changed my mind? Could I have done anything about it at the time? If the answer to that is no, like with a cell phone contract, then I just click and move on. What are you going to do? Um, I, real quickly, I want to ask you, Ben, we just got about a, uh, not even quite a minute, uh, but you are married to India Kincannon, our current mayor. What's it been like to be the spouse of a politician over the last few years? So one thing that's been really odd is that uh, we, she was sworn in late 2019 and basically took over in 2020. So a huge chunk of the time that she's been in office has been COVID time. So I can't really answer what it's like to be the first gentleman of the mayor. I only have a couple of months of experience before and after the pandemic where it's been sort of normal. Um, I can say what it's like to be the the husband of the candidate, and that was really fun, super super fun. India's um, like legendary for her hard work and getting out and knocking on doors. And the six months before both of those elections, I was out knocking on doors with her. We went all over the city, met all sorts of folks, found out about their concerns. Um, it's a weirdly interesting occupation. Um, you know, obviously, you meet all sorts of different people, and you meet them in their houses, and you hear about their lives, and it's terrific. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time today. It's been very informative and interesting to have no, you thank on. You thank for you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great. That's Ben Barton. He's over at the University of Tennessee College of Law, also married to our uh, city mayor, India Kincannon. Today, we've discussed our law and judicial system because a greater 
Greater legal rights provides for more living so you can live the best years of your life your way. Thank you, Chris, for engineering. Thank you, Jill, producing. This is More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Have a great weekend. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.